The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. So I want to go a little bit behind the curtain, Holly, because we've worked together for 20 years. In that time, you and I have both had an opportunity, me in Edmonton, you in uh, the GTA, to host the uh, Mayor's Breakfast. Yeah, but in the GTA, there's like five that happen. There's a lot of breakfasts that you are taking a part in. Yeah, people like to eat. They like to pray. That is my big takeaway from the move to Ontario. <laughs> That's good. So usually when we get a guest, it's it's a former of, uh, whether it's a, a former politician or a former athlete. And so it's kind of cool that, uh, that we get a current mayor, somebody who is in the hot seat all the time and gets to spend some time with us. Yes, I'm so excited. I know that you're going to be encouraged and inspired by this next conversation. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce his worship mayor, Dan Carter, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to join you this afternoon and today. I I greatly appreciate it. Dan, we like to ask this guilt testing question because we never know where it's going to go. And that is, who are you and where did you come from? Who am I? I'm Dan Carter, of course, the mayor for the great city of Oshawa. And Oshawa is just on the outskirts of uh, Toronto. We're about 45 kilometers to the east. And so I've been given the opportunity to be able to be the mayor of, of the great city of Oshawa. Uh, first in 2018, we received almost 70% of the vote. Uh, and then again in 2022, we were reelected with 65% of, of the vote. So I've been very blessed to have the opportunity to be able to serve. But, um, I was a previous, I was a broadcaster before that. And before that, of course, had some, um, challenges in my life, uh, spent about 17 years, uh, in the tangles and in the grips of addri- addiction with mm. both um, alcohol and drugs and found myself, of course, um, on the streets and uh, broken in every, I always say that I was mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and spiritually broken. And I think that best describes me, but I sit here some 33 years later, I've been fortunate enough to be able to have sobriety for the last 33 years. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Just, just, I think that gives people hope just even in that short little bit, because when you sit here and you're this, you know, polished politician, um, a man who so many people in your community respect, and yet you had a season, a, a big part of your season of your life where I'm sure people looked at you and thought, Dan, he needs <laughs> prayer and <laughs> help. And they probably thought you wouldn't really matter or amount to much. But people don't end up in addiction just because they feel like it. There's a, a lot mm-hmm. of stuff that brings them to that point. For you, like, how did your story start? What brought you to the point where addictions and, and drugs was your way out? It was a combination. I would say that a lot of us that suffer with addiction and find ourselves at the very dark end of it, um, many of us have personal um, events that have happened in our lives that have played a significant role. And in my circumstance, it was a combination of a whole bunch of different events. I, I, I lost my mom when I was very young and I was put into foster care. I was blessed because of the reason that I was adopted by a family. Um, went off to school in the early part of the 60s, uh, had a severe learning disability and wasn't diagnosed, therefore really kind of ostracized outside of the classroom and, and struggled with um, my literacy. And, and my, my elementary school years were very painful for me. And through that period of time, a lot of bullying happened and a lot of, a lot of self-esteem issues. Through that time, um, at the same time as a, as a young seven-year-old, um, I was raped uh, by a stranger, and that played a significant role in regards to 
how I saw myself, how I saw relationships and, and really the shame that went along with that. And then when I was 13, my brother Michael was killed and he was a police officer at the time. He was 28 and a father of three. And I think those combinations of all those different events at, at different critical times of my adolescence played a significant role. And I think it really impacted me. And I think where what happened with me was I discovered alcohol uh, when I was 13 because of my brother's death. And it was, at matter of fact, on my brother's wake. And one of the things that it gave me was confidence and it gave me, I thought I was charisma and I thought it was funny. And I thought all the things that I really, really wanted to be and that I was nothing of. And by the way, at the same time, I was growing so tall. I was like 6'2 and weighed like 85 pounds at the same time. So, you know, can't read, can't write, um, has no athletic ability, had a lot of tragedy around me. And at the same time, going through this awkward stage and then being bullied a lot i think you just want to fit in and i think that i thought that uh, alcohol would give me that answer and and once i found alcohol it led me down a very dark path that i struggled with for over 17 years when did you decide to start talking about the struggles because a lot of times i mean we all might have some sort of learning disability but i mean sexual abuse and rape is one thing dealing with addiction and that is another thing at what point did you decide i need to start talking about this and letting people know this is what i've been through for me personally it happened once i was in rehabilitation i was in a long-term program of almost a year a rehabilitation program that played a significant role in regards to my recovery. But it was the very first time I talked about things that I was very ashamed of. Imagine being a seven-year-old boy being raped and the shame that goes with that and not really truly understanding about it and carrying that for, for a long period of time. The impact of, believe it or not, of being adopted, but you know, what about my biological family? What happened there? Why, why did that event happen? And really having a spirited, open conversation, but a safe conversation was really important. The shame that went with uh, not being able to read and write and having that conversation, how it made me feel and why that went to my self-confidence and self-worth and how I saw myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, my brother's death, what do you do as a 13-year-old boy that you see this police officer dressed in a, in a uniform with a Canadian flag on his casket and, and see your parents just destroyed because it was their firstborn. But at the same time, where do you put that and really understand it? And I think that um, a lot of that really came to surface once I was in rehabilitation and I had the opportunity to talk about it. When I went public is when I started uh, being in the public eye as a television host. And the one thing that I knew about my sobriety was that I could never allow people to presume I was something And the only way that I could really be who I was, was I needed to be able to be honest with those that were tuning in. And so some people criticized me for it, but I did it because of the reason that I didn't want people to think that I appeared this polished individual on television and wearing nice clothes and all those kind of things, that I was an imperfect, broken, challenged um, uh, individual that was just trying their best, but had all of this brokenness with them. I, it was really important for me to be able to stay the the path and the course that I was on. So you have a crossroads at the age of 13 when your brother passes and you chose drugs and alcohol. 
Yeah. Then you have a crossroads where it's at, at what crossroad was it that it's either I'm going to continue on this path or I'm going to go to rehab. Why did you make that uh, change? It was the one day. And I, I always say there's a day that comes with many of us that struggle with addiction that I truly looked in the mirror and saw what I had become. I had lost a lot of weight. I'm, I'm 6'2", I'm 215 pounds. I was about 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked terrible. My face was gaunt. I, I was shaking violently. I was sick every morning. And I called my sister and I just said to her, I said, Marina, I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble and I need some help. And my sister gave me an ultimatum. And I went to see her and she said, you either sober up today or you die today. And that was really that kind of realization. I think I never realized what I had become. And I think that what happened was I, when I truly saw myself for the very first time, I think it really clicked in. Now, I was fortunate enough that once I made the commitment and said, I need help, help was there. And that's key in regards to all those that are suffering across our country right now. That's one of the areas we've got to try and improve on. We've got to make sure that the help is available when somebody says, I need help. Hmm. And for me, it was that one moment. When it comes to getting help, um, what were some of those initial steps that you moved towards to be able to get the support you needed? Because I think sometimes people ask for help, but they don't know the kind of help that they even need. Well, I, I, I think that I was blessed because my sister Maureen understood that I was struggling with addiction and, and, and mental mm-hmm. health. Mental health on the side of depression, self-esteem, self-worth, sure. um, a lot of personal tragedy. And I think she understood that I was really struggling with that. So I think that that was the first thing. And then getting into a program where it gave me the opportunity um, first to heal physically, but then heal also uh, mentally. What I didn't realize when I was in rehabilitation was uh, I remember somebody saying to me, even though you're sober, even though you're being equipped different, even though you've got the tools to be able to kind of move forward, always understand that life is unfair and sometimes it's going to challenge us at different chapters. And I really didn't understand what that was because I was in this euphoric moment. I'm I'm healed. I'm I'm healthy. I'm strong. I've come to terms with all this. And I didn't really realize um, that that would come to roost uh, on May seventeenth, two thousand, and that that was that was a really difficult, difficult time for me. So you go through uh, all of this, and, and coming out on the other end of it, I, I mean, I chose broadcasting because I wasn't good at anything. Uh, I don't know why Holly did it. Why did you <laughs> then decide that broadcasting would be the next step? You know what? It was a friend of mine that said you could talk to anybody, and I and I kind of went, yeah, I, I know. I had no skills, <laughs> abilities. I don't have a formal education, so I don't have, uh, I, I don't have a grade eight uh, graduation certificate. I don't have report cards from K to eight that say that I passed. I never passed a grade eight. They just transferred me or failed me. I never went to high school. I ended up being a broadcaster. For one is because of the reason a guy said you could talk to anybody and we came up with this concept that I could talk to anybody, so why not? Mm. But what I realized was once I got in that chair, I understood that by talking to people and, and really being curious about what they did is what it was doing was it was educating me. And mm. so I, I found it as a really fascinating uh, uh, approach. I went, oh, so I can get all of this education by talking to people that have these experiences. And a good friend of mine said, you know what? You need to know an inch thick about everything. And mm. broadcasting gave me the opportunity to do that. I, I've, I've had the opportunity to, 
to interview thousands of people. And I think what happened is when you're authentic, when you go into this business because of the reason that you have a curiosity, that you're committed, you're authentic. One is those that you interview know it's authentic. And number two is they know it's not just the next question on the page. And that those conversations, you as broadcasters must know this. You never know out of what conversation is going to impact somebody in some way. But isn't it wonderful to know that just maybe today somebody's going to hear something that is truly going to be able to turn their life in a different direction? And to me, I think that that's one of the most exciting things. I think we've lost our way in journalism, that we're looking for things that are clickbait and we're mm. looking for bad news. And the reality being is great conversations have a way of being able to inspire, motivate, and support people that may not have a voice. Yeah, we love that idea. And that's how we do the podcast. Yeah. We're all about the, the conversations. Yeah. I want to I want to rewind just a couple of seconds because you like yeah. specified a date, May 21st. May, May 17th, 2000. May 17th. Sound like a, a TSN turning point in your life. Uh, it was a significant, um, it's a, it's a significant event that happened in my life. Um, my sister, Maureen, that, that saved my life and uh, got me into rehabilitation. Um, I was informed um, on that day that my, my sister had committed suicide. And, mm. uh, <laughs> You know, it's 20-something years later, and it's still difficult for me to talk about. Um, I, my sister had turned 50 in January of 2000, and uh, she was a successful businesswoman, didn't have addiction issues or mental health issues. And, uh, you know, I, I, just, I, I just, we never saw it coming, and we just didn't understand there was a couple of different events that happened in her life that we weren't um, really aware of the impact that it had. Just after my brother was killed in 1974 of July, my sister was in a really serious bad car accident with her girlfriend that their car broke down at the side of a highway and they were walking on the shoulder and a drunk driver came over and hit them at a hundred miles an hour and killed her oh. girlfriend. And I never understood that the, the survivor's guilt that she, she lived with. And I didn't understand some of those challenges. And um, I was nine years, nine years sober at the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's 20 something, 23 years later, and it still affects me today speaking about it. And it's one of the reasons why I never want to lose focus in regards to there is families out there today. Um, they estimate 12 families will be impacted by suicide today. We have to do everything we possibly can to, to have conversations and share our experiences and lean on each other. It truly was a moment in my life that that um, challenged me on a whole bunch of different ways, including my faith. I still um, struggle with that conversation about Marie. How do you even have faith after going through what you went through? You know, I was I was so lucky. I had a pastor when I was struggling with Maureen's death. I had a pastor. I had not been going to church, and I had, you know, I, I grew up as uh, in a Presbyterian church and went to church because my parents were born in 1915, served in the war, and so the traditional pathway to church. Um, and I had uh, drifted away from the church, as you can imagine, especially through my addiction. And then when Maureen died, I, I was really struggling, and I knew that I I 
couldn't depend on drugs or alcohol and I didn't pick up drugs and alcohol. I just thought how, how horrible that would be to dishonor her life. Um, but I went and saw a gentleman that I had met. At, I was at a, at a matter of fact, it was a maximum impact um, seminar that I was at. And I met this pastor, Doug Snyder at the embassy church here in Oshawa. And I, one day I was, I had just finished doing a radio show and the, and the uh, church was across the street and I walked in unexpectedly and I walked in and I, and I said, can I see pastor, pastor Doug Snyder? And because of my little notoriety, <laughs> I was, I was able to get in and see him. And uh, I talked about that. I was struggling with my sister's suicide and that I really couldn't come to terms with it. And I was really struggling with a lot of things. And he said, have you read your Bible? I said, well, I'm dyslexic and I, I struggle with ancient uh, texts and I really have struggled with any pulled from this bookshelf, a, a book called The Message. And he said, I need you to read this. I need you to read a couple pages every day. You don't have to read the whole thing in a little while. He said, take your time. I understand that. And he said, I, I want to meet with you every other week and we'll just sit down and talk. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of, I think it was an opening where, I, I, you know, this kind of discovery happened. And I think the discovery that happened there was, I still remember this part, and it was, I said to him, I said, I didn't realize that Jesus hung around some really bad dudes, like really bad guys, eh? broken, dark, tax collector, murders. Like, I, like this is, I would have never expected it. He said, he said, Danny, why do you think he did that? And I said, I don't I have no idea. He said, can you relate to perfection? I said, no, absolutely not. He said, so I want you to think about that. How perfect are these individuals? And I went, oh, my God. Brokenness to be able to show others that brokenness is welcome. It's not shunned upon. Welcome, brokenness is, is welcomed on. And I think, I think that that helped me to start going down the path of understanding that there was more. There was a reason why I was still alive. There was a reason why I had gone through all these things but I was still struggling with why it would happen to me. And it finally hit that I always thought that I was going through all these, because none of my friends went through all this. They didn't lose loved ones. They didn't get raped. They didn't have learning disabilities. They were good athletes, good looking, past grades, you know, got report cards, all those things, right? But what I came to the realization was after reading that is I thought, oh my God, I'm not being punished. I'm being prepared. Mm. And I just, that's, that made sense to me because I couldn't make sense in any other way. I could either say that I'm being punished and somebody's punishing me and I'm worse than anybody or that I know. Or on the other side of it is I'm, I must be being prepared for something. And I, and I didn't know what I was being prepared for, but I, that made logical sense to me. And I think that helped me come to terms with. Uh, my struggles. And I think that was part of, that was a beginning process of my spiritual healing. And I think that that played a significant role. As you lead a city like Oshawa, do you ever sit in your chair and think, how did I get here? <laughs> Always. I still walk, I still walk down the, the hall. I say this honestly, I walk down the hall every day and my name plates on there and I walk, I have I'm lucky that I have two support uh, people, my chief of staff, Mark, and, and my EA, Leah. And I walk down the hall and I still go, can you believe it? I still remember 
in my office here, and I, I, my office, I'm very fortunate. I've got a, a nice office, and as you can see, I, I've got Dr. King uh, hanging on my walls there, and that plays a poor bar. I still remember when I first got elected, we were sitting here setting up my office. My wife, Paula, was with me at the time, and we looked around this office. She said, can you believe it? And I said, no, I can't. <laughs> it's crazy. So, anyways. So I think the big question, though, I mean, we talk about you can't believe that you're sitting in that office, but why did you decide to run for mayor? I mean, you could have, you know, skirted on and continued to be a broadcaster. You could have done something completely different. Why mayor? Well, I think it was two things. I think one is is that I had been asked to run publicly for many, many times, and I just didn't know where I fit in. And to be absolutely honest, I was scared. If I put my name on a ballot and I lose, how embarrassing is that going to be, right? And not really. And then also thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I, this is this guy that's so broken. Would anybody, no no politician would be ever be elected with all that brokenness. And in 2014, uh, my wife finally said to me, either, either you stop talking about politics or you put your name on something. And so I did run in 2014 and I ran for uh, what's called a city and regional representative. So I, I represent our city and then I represent the region. And I was, I was absolutely shocked that, um, that I was elected at that time with the third highest votes. And I was just shocked because you, you had to run at large. And then in 2018, the mayor that sat in this office, uh, our regional chairman had died um, and he had, said that he was going to run for regional chair. And he came to me and he said, so Danny, I I, uh, I want to have a conversation with you. He said, I need you to run for mayor. And I said, oh, Mr. Mayor, I said, I, I'm, I'm still getting my feet wet. I said, I've only been here four years. I've got a lot to learn. There's so much more people that are a lot smarter than me and everything else. He said, I'm really glad that you have all these thoughts, but I'm not, I'm not asking you to run for mayor. I'm telling you you're running for mayor. Mm-hmm. And I, and I gathered about 10 of my friends together after that conversation. So what do you think? And they said, absolutely. You're our guy. And I kind of went, really? And they went, yeah, yeah, you're our guy. And then on top of that, I said, well, where am I going to, how am I going to raise enough money to run a campaign? And one of the guys said, don't worry about it. We'll do it. And they did yeah. do it. And all the way through the process, it was kind of interesting. And on election day, I got to tell this very fast, funny story broadcasters from all across Canada were coming to Oshawa because the polls were showing that I was going to be the next mayor. And their headlines were, homeless man becomes mayor. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I had to stop everybody and say, you do understand, right, that I wasn't homeless when I ran from the mayorship, right? But I just want to clear that up. Click but it, it gave yes. a lot of gave a lot of attention across the country, and I still remember uh, doing an interview with Dwight Drummond at, at uh, CBC, and he comes from an area called Jane and Finch, and uh, we're walking up the main street, and he said, "Could you have ever imagined after the next day on my uh, after election day being elected the mayor with your background?" And I said, "Dwight." Could you have ever imagined coming from Jane and Finch and being the news anchor at CBC? Because both of us kind of sat there and went, how blessed are we? And it, and it was just one of those things. So it really was, you know, being at the right place at the right time with the right people seeing, I think, that I had the skills and the abilities and the talents at that particular time. And by the way, three days before I took over as mayor, the largest industry in our community uh, made an announcement 
after 110 years of operation here, they were closing. And it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was thousands of jobs here. And I'm a new mayor and it's kind of they throw you the keys and say, so good luck. And it's oh, like, man, <laughs> but we, uh, but we worked through it and, and we've been very lucky. A lot of our listeners are in Alberta. So Jane and Finch might not mean anything to them. Do you mind just quickly explaining what the significance of that area is? So Jane and Finch is in the northern part of of the city of Toronto. And it is one area that is geographically challenged, but also economically challenged. Um, It was designed at one time with the best intentions. But what had happened is they put all of the kind of um, what they called at the time social housing together. So they have thousands of units. And they have challenges. When you have people that are economically or geographically challenged, you're going to have challenges. And when you have thousands of people that have challenges, um, it can create an environment that is not one that lifts up, but suppresses down. And Janet Fitch, for the longest period of time, was known as that. And a lot of a lot of first-generation Canadians would move into that area because it was affordable, um, but it had high rates of crime, drug dealing, all those kind of things. So it's it's a geographic area that's been challenged on a lot of a lot of different ways. The good news about it is I think that we've learned that we can never build communities like that again. And Regent Park in Toronto that was very similar in the downtown core has been under a redevelopment and done some incredible things in regards to it. So we do have models about what didn't work and what can work. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a synopsis of uh, Jane and Finch area. Thank you. From from things like uh, abuse to addiction to being homeless to being the mayor, uh, there's a lot of those hills and valley moments where, where we ask God that question: Why me? Why are, am I going through this? Or why are you using me in this way, um, Mayor? Do you think that there's one specific key moment that you could think of where you ask God that question: Why me? Oh, I asked him right after Marine died. I mean, I asked him why me about it, and. I don't, you know, I'm a great believer that your faith is not a one moment. I think it's a lifetime journey. I think that different answers come in at different times. Your relationship um, uh, goes through maturity, and I think it, it nurtures itself. I think that it takes work on yourself to be able to have that relationship with God. And I think also at the same time, God doesn't give it to you all at the same time. And I think that part of the inquisitive nature of human beings also keeps us engaged and keeps us moving forward. So, you know, there's been lots of moments of why me about why these things happen. What I can tell you is that I have a great belief that God knows what the plan is. He's put me in this position because he believes I'll do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And I, and I'm hoping that the way that I demonstrate leadership, even with the difficult social issues I have to deal with and make hard decisions, that people see that there's an authenticity to my decision-making and that I am doing it for the right reasons at the right time, for the right at the right moment. And I think God helps me through that. I, I There's times where, where my faith is really, really strong and overwhelming sometimes, especially in worship. I, I get very emotional. Uh, because I, there's something about it that really connects with me. But I think that, that uh, God is keeping me on a, on a short leash, leash and that he continues to let it out a little bit each year. And I think that he wants me to be continue to be um, inquisitive. And I think he wants me to keep on searching. But why me? Why not me? I mean, mm-hmm. I've, 
uh, what I have learned out of the contact that I've had with people, if it's a child that's that has a learning disability or is dyslexic, if it's somebody that has is dealing with um, a loved one that is struggling with addiction, if it's um, somebody that has lost somebody through suicide, um, all of these things. I had the opportunity to uh, speak in Cornwall, Ontario, a great organization called the Children's Treatment Center, and they they treat 150 kids a year for sexually abuse. And, you know, when I got to Cornwall, I wasn't really sure why I was there uh, about two years ago. And I understood that it wasn't about being a victim, but about victory. And it was about that we do redeem ourselves. We can find forgiveness, that we do have a pathway forward, um, that there is purpose to our lives, as painful as it is. And then it begs the question, if so much has happened to me and the events that have happened, and there's millions of people out there just like me, then does that mean that we have the strength hmm. to be able to move forward? And, you know, I have to I have to think to myself that I think all of us have the strength within ourselves to be able to get through the most difficult days. You talk about how you are in a position now where you can positively impact an incredible community. And, you know, you're talking about how, well, how would somebody vote for me? Well, I think a lot of people <laughs> are waiting for the other shoe to drop with politicians. They're looking for the skeletons. Yeah. And yet you were just so vulnerable and authentic with who you were that they just knew um, what they were getting. And do you feel that your vulnerability and openness has helped you to get to this this point? I think I think there's a couple things. One is I think it's set unrealistic expectations. Uh, I'll give you an example. When uh, when um, um, President Obama was elected in, and I have, as you can see behind me, um, large prints of Martin Luther King, and I'm very I'm a I'm, I'm a scholar of King just because of of his brokenness, his imperfectness, but his he was a tremendous orator. When Obama got elected, I looked at him and said, there's King. And that was unfair. And I expected him to be King. Um, there was a magazine article that was done, a Canadian magazine article when I first got elected. And it said, this man saved his life. Can he also save this city? And I think what happened is when you have to understand that um, even with all this brokenness and in, in, in this imperfect aspect of it, um, people have sometimes unrealistic expectations that um, there's, you know, you're going to hit it out of the park on every decision you make. And I think so there's a danger also, but I think there's a a huge amount more of freedom and and inspiration Mm -hmm. by being honest and open. So there's, there's the both, right? And I've had to come to terms with that. I think there's unrealistic expectations. We have an opiate and opiate and a mental health crisis across this country. Mm-hmm. You know, people expect me to have all the answers, and I'll be honest with you. Every day, I'm angry, frustrated, and and passionate about finding the right reasons. I was on a, a two-hour meeting today about it mm-hmm. again, and I, you know, I, people are saying, "Well, you lived it. You, you know, you used to be on the street. Why aren't you doing all this stuff?" And it's, you know, so it, it there is. There is this unrealistic expectation, but I think you just, you have to take it and you have to say to yourself, did I do my best today? And am I going to do my best tomorrow? And I think that that's what you stay focused on. That's good. Our nation is celebrating a birthday and it's a time where I know a lot of Christians start focusing in on how can we pray for our nation? How can we pray for the leaders? 
What would you say is one of the things that we can pray for when it comes to those leading federally, provincially, municipally? I've been saying a message all the way, um, and I have the opportunity to travel the country to, to be able to speak uh, occasionally, and I, I love those opportunities. The one thing I want Canadians uh, to understand is I believe we're in a historical moment right now. And what I want to say to Canadians that I want us to pray about is I want us not to allow anger and fear and darkness to enter our, our sphere. For those that are seeking um, a position, sometimes anger and fear and darkness is really easy to sell. I can tell you what that guy's done wrong. I can tell you, you know, all those kind of things. And what I continue to say is let us not allow darkness and fear and anger come in. This is not a time for division of our country. This is a time that we must come together. We have more diversity that's coming into this country of people from around the world that are calling Canada home. We as leaders, we as individuals have to demonstrate that darkness and fear and anger have no place in our society because that's too easy. And don't allow our leaders, because it's cheap and fast, to be able to sell them. We've got to pray that leaders are going to be created as imperfect as they are. But we need to pray that darkness, fear, and anger are not part of a national conversation. And for me, I think that's just so important right now because we see it. You know, we see what the other guy's done. And, you know, I'm that. And my question always back is, you know, we know the imperfections of those that are making decisions. What are the decisions you're going to make? What do you stand for? What do you believe? How are you going to work with that individual so that we're all lifted up? Not that just some of us are being lifted up, but how are we all going to? That's the true test of leadership. And to be absolutely honest, that's what I'm asking people um, across this nation. Do not allow anger and fear and darkness. There's not an east and a west and a center. There is the country and nation of Canada. And we are, we are, we are an important time in our history. So let us come together as a nation and let us make sure that we don't allow those things to enter our sphere. At the crossroads of life, uh, was given the sober up or die, chose to sober up. Look at you now, my friend. This is, uh, absolutely amazing. It also gives Holly and I hope that we may have a future after broadcasting <laughs> at Dan Carter Oshawa. On the socials, his worship, Mayor Dan Carter, my friend, appreciate you. Thank you for taking some time. Listen, stay well. May God be with you both. I wanted to ask one more question. Oh, I'm so sorry. I dominated the interview, I think. No, it's fine because I know what the answer is going to be and I know how it's going to turn out. (laughs) Wait, wait, what was the question? Let me pretend to be him. Okay. I have asked three separate mayors over the last decade as to whether or not I could have a key to the city. And all three of them have told me no. Mayor Carter, is it possible that I could or myself and Holly share a key to the city? You know, I can't speak for him, but I think the answer might be no. All right. Good thing I didn't ask. I didn't I couldn't face the rejection. But my goodness, what what a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it it encourages me to see that his origin story mm. impacted his current situation in only the best of ways. And he talks about being prepared because of those moments in his past. And I think it's a beautiful way of, of looking at the moments where we could 
you know, succumb to a victim mentality, and yet he became victorious, as he said. Yeah, don't let the past define you, but then again, learn from it, and then, you know, kick the future in the butt. <laughs> right? Do you think right? maybe he'll go into federal politics? I don't know. I mean, if you would have said broadcasting, you'd have been like, no, and then you said mayor, he's like, no. <laughs> no. So, I mean... <laughs> Even if he says federal, no, maybe? <laughs> federal, world... I mean, I don't know. The sky's the limit for that guy. Yes. But I think his story goes to encourage us that maybe the sky is the limit for us as well. That's good. That's really good. Wow. Good take home. Thank you. Uh, thank you to everybody who has downloaded, who listens, who subscribes, who follows us on all the socials. By the way, we could make that a lot bigger. We'd have a lot more people subscribing and following and clicking like stuff. If you would just do that. Yes, and we would absolutely love that. This is our 300th episode. I know. What? And what so a we've. Banger. <laughs> I know. We've got video and we do have lots of ways for you to connect with us. And we would truly love to hear from you. What did you love? What stood out to you? Who do you want to hear next on Wimey mm. Project? That's good. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> Facestrongtoday.com. Follow us. 